For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Now, I did tell you what this week's about, but what's the answer? What's that fault? Pride. Boom, I did it in big letters. (laughs) This is not a small thing here. This is a huge, huge thing, and so do I. You suffer from it uh, all the time, and it needs to be uh, fought. It needs to be uh, mastered. It needs to be uh, put in its place. Let's just read some verses, selected verses from Proverbs. Um, So, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's staggering in itself, isn't it? God actually is against proud people, but he really gives his grace and life to the humble. Whoever derides or mocks or ridicules their neighbor lacks judgment. Where there are arguments, there is pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. The Lord tears down the dwelling or the house of the proud. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be lowly of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide wealth with the proud. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is of lowly spirit would obtain honor. Lord, we thank you for these uh, wise words of uh, Solomon the ones he's collected together, this library of wise sayings. And Lord, we know that they're so true. We know that pride is everywhere, stirring arguments, bringing destruction, making us haughty and proud. Lord, I pray that you'd humble our hearts. Lord, you say in your word, humble yourself under the Lord's hand and that you in due time will be exalted. Lord, we thank you that's true for Jesus. And we pray, let it be true for us. Amen. <clears throat> okay, I need to reference my source here. Um, Tim Keller is my source this week, again. Uh, uh, so I, uh, I have prepared this uh, fresh, but I did lean heavily on Mr. Keller for his content. Uh, so I just need to be honest. Otherwise, it would be incredibly proudful of me, wouldn't it, to suggest that all this was all my own ideas. Uh, and obviously, we won't want that to happen this particular morning. On any of the morning, I might get away with it, but this morning, I need to complain. <laughs> now, I do like to tell you what's going on. Okay, so um, what is pride? What is pride? Uh, why don't you turn to the person next to you and define... Uh, turn to the person next to you and define what you think pride is. What's pride? Not just say, oh, it's this. Try and dig into it. What is pride? Okay. Uh, I will ask the class, because we'll never get done and then you blame me for going on a long time. Uh, but it's interesting that, that, that you can look at pride and think, um, pride is, well, I, I, I'm good at this, or I'm good at that, or, you know, I, I'm good at preaching, or I'm not good at preaching, or I'm, I, I, I'm good at being a pharmaceutical, whatever you do, Graham. You know, I'm a researcher. <laughs> you know, I'm good at being a, an engineer. I'm good at I'm good at working at the Star College. I, I, I'm good at those things in my job, or I'm I'm good at some traits. You know, I'm good musically, or I'm good at good at those things. And in one sense, you can think, well, that that is pride. But actually, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, uh, carrying on from the, the the section that I quoted earlier, he he actually 
puts a really interesting reflection on it. He puts, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, whether that's a, something you possess or some ability or experience. Only out of having it more than the next person. You think, oh, you've already got me see a solution. <laughs> when we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, they are not. They're proud of being richer and cleverer and better looking than others. If ever, uh, if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. This is the, I don't want to just know my mark position, I want to know if I'm top of the class. I don't just want to know my marathon time. I want to know where I came in the in, in the running order. I don't know. I don't want to know if I'm a good preacher. I want to know if I'm better than him down the road. You know, I don't want to know if I'm good looking. I want to know I'm better looking than you. It's really interesting. This sense that pride is the need to feel superior to other people. It's this idea of you're constantly ranking yourself, you're constantly comparing yourself, you're constantly saying, well, how do I come out in that area? And some of us, uh, we might call prideful, we seem we're doing well. Some of us, we think, well, we're not doing so well. But it's all part of this sense of ranking. And pride is this needing need to feel superior to others. It's that looking down your nose. Proverbs says it like this, Proverbs 11, 12. Whoever derides their neighbour lacks judgment. Yeah, I, I, I typed in looking down your nose. It's the most contemptuous picture I could find. There is this sense, you know, where, where people look down on you or you look down on other people. There's a famous sketch uh, from, from many years past where the John Cleeds and then another guy and then Ronnie Corbett did this sketch and he said, I am upper class and I look down on you because you're middle class. And then the guy middle class says, I am middle class. I look up to you because you're upper class and I look down on you because you're lower class. And then there's Ronnie Corbett. I am lower king class. I look up to you and I don't even dare look in your face. <laughs> you know, and there's this sense where we like to compare. We know our, we like to know our place in the pecking order. We like to know it socioeconomically. We like to know it in lots of ways. British society is worse than most societies. It's embedded in our system, but it's actually in every culture. How are you doing? You like to look down on others. It's all about this sense of comparison, this sense of I'm better than you, you're worse than me that makes us feel good. Um, Tim Keller uses an example that says, for example, lust might stir up a man to desire a relationship with a beautiful woman. Notice it's powerful men that get beautiful women. It's not always beautiful men that get beautiful women. Powerful men get beautiful women. That's the nature of the world. But lust may stir up a desire to say, I, I, I think you're attractive, I desire you, I'd like a relationship with you, or whatever that involves. And lust makes you do that, but actually in one sense, at least lust, you want the actual item. You know, you want the, the, the girl, or you want the money, or you want something. Lust desires. But, but pride, says Keller, is a man, may stir up a man to prove that he can have a relationship with a beautiful woman just because he can. Just because he can and you can't. So I don't know if you've ever had a friend who basically you ever talked about um, a girl and thought, oh, she's nice, I like her. I had a friend uh, called Nigel who was at college with me here. He was better looking than me. He, uh, I, uh, certainly he made me aware of that fact. Whether he was or not, I certainly felt that he was better looking than me. And so if we ever talked about a girl, his, uh, he would then make sure that he would be in the girl's affection and I wasn't. 
Uh, I, I, you know, and it was just like, well, that was just the way it was. And I think, well, did you like this girl? I expressed some like of this girl, and now you're sort of seeing her. Do you really want her, or are you just trying to prove that you're... I don't know. He doesn't listen to my podcast. He's away from Jesus. He was a Christian at the time. He's away from Jesus. Maybe that was me. Maybe it was my insecurity speaking. I don't know. Let's, it's too complicated a world. But do you understand the thing about the difference between lust might desire a woman, but pride says, I want the woman, not because of the woman, but because you can't have her. And that happens in so much of our lives that we're so interested in, 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 in doing better, to make ourselves better than you. Uh, if you ever uh, apply for university, uh, you have to fill in a UCAS form. Uh, or if you apply for a job, you have to fill in a, a CV. And I don't know uh, if you've ever thought about, well, this uh, this might look good on my CV. Have any, anyone ever had that that thought? I, work, I don't really fancy this. I don't really want to do this or whatever, but it might look good on my CV. You know, if you run in the school cross country, it's going to look good on your CV. If you do this or you do that or whatever, you might, it might look good on your CV. You know, I've done these things. I'm sorry, I can't help but reference my family because I live in that world. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it looks good on your CV. And in one sense, that isn't so bad if you're looking for a job. But, but if, uh, if that's the, the way that you live your life, that the, all the way through your life, you, you're basically saying, this is going to make me look good, or this is going to make me look, this is not going to make me look good. It, you're forever writing your UCAS statement that takes those threads of anything decent you've done and projects it large on the wall and says, I am the most amazing student possible. You know, I don't know why we bother with them, because they are a sort of pack of lies, aren't they? And, you know, all half-truths. I mean, some people do just lie on this uh, UCAS statements, you know, which is unwise. But there's definitely a certain amount of inflation and puffing up going on in that. And, and we can do that all the time in our life. Whether you've ever made a CV or applied for a university or applied for a job, you can be doing that all the time, because pride is always making the case for its own significance. It's always uh, gathering evidence for its own significance. It's always forever writing the CV of life. It's always wanting to, to present how good it is. So this search for evidence, it's almost like you live light, uh, life in a courtroom. Um, uh, Tim Keller quotes Arthur Miller, who's an American play- playwright, who wrote a play, and one of the characters in the play basically describes this situation where he spent the whole of his life searching for, for evidence that he matters, that he counts, searching for, trying to prove himself, forever kind of market himself, spinning how better he is, forever doing that, always obsessed with the verdict, I've, I'm great, I'm the best at this, I'm the best at this, as if he's standing before a judge and making this case. And then Arthur Miller writes in the play that actually he looks up and the bench was empty. In other words, he's making this case as if God's listening, but actually doesn't even believe in God. It's just intrinsic to human nature. We're gathering this evidence, assessing our performance, obsessed with what people think about us. So we live in this kind of courtroom situation. We live in this situation where I'm trying to say, I am better than you. You know, I'm a valuable person because there's a thousand in my church, and then I'd feel valuable. And wouldn't you've only got 60 in yours? Oh, I'm sure. That's my kind of thing that I have to work through. I mean, the guys say don't talk about that all the time. But you know, the, whatever your world that you're in, the way that you evaluate things, as if you're constantly presenting this evidence, uh, to who you're presenting it, I don't know, you're presenting it to yourself, you're presenting it to others. You might even be presenting it to God. You might even say, well, I've done this, and I've done that, and God, you should love me. 
I've had a bad day. God, I'm sure you don't love me. Well, I've read my Bible all week. God, you owe me. And we're constantly gathering this information about why we should be good or why we should be valued. I play in the band, so you should love me. I don't play in the band. I feel useless. Why? What's my purpose? We're constantly working forward. But somebody calls, I call you forward for response and you weigh up the evidence. If I come forward, what will the people say about me? Will they say I'm vulnerable and needy? I need Jesus. Oh dear, that might not work. I better stay in my seat. If I stay in my seat, will I appear hard-hearted and critical? What will I do then? Oh, maybe you just, not you're not like that, but most people I know are like this. And so pride is this forever gathering this evidence to, to make yourself look better, to make others look worse, to this endless comparison, this standing before the court and saying, this is what I'm like. Please value me. Please love me. And pride, when it really gets moving, takes the place of God. You read the beginning of the, uh, of the story of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. We did this at 321 this week uh, and talking about this sense where, where pride says, uh, I want to take the place of God. This endless comparison is gets to the point where you say, well, actually, I want to be like God. The, the tempter says, why don't you take this fruit and you'll eat it and you'll be like God. You can climb another step of the ladder. You can even form your own verdicts on yourself. You can decide what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. You can decide how you're doing in this case for evidence. Lewis Smead uh, puts it like this. Long quote, two slides, so bear with me. Pride in the religious sense is the arrogant refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for oneself. Pride is puffing yourself up in the face of God. Turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator. Independent, Reliant on your own resources. Never does pride want to pray for strength or ask for grace or plead for mercy or give thanks to God. Pride is the grand illusion, the fantasy of fantasies, the cosmic put-up. The fantasy is that we can make it as little gods, only leaves us empty at the centre. Once we have decided... Once we decide we have to make it on our own, we're attacked by crushing fear and anxiety. We suspect that we lack the power to become what our pride makes us think we are. So we learn to swagger, to bluff, to use symbols, to cover up our fears that we lack substance. We force other people to act as buttresses for the shaking ego that pride created by emptying our soul of God. Whoa. That's what we are. I can't add to that. We can't add to that. It's just the fear, the anxiety, the grabbing of others, putting of others down to fill that hole where God's verdict should be. So pride is chronically aware of itself. I don't know if you have arguments at all in your relationships, arguments in your life. Proverbs says, where there are arguments, there is pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. Uh, Tim Keller talks about hanging a picture. 
So presumably him and Kathy have had arguments about hanging pictures, and I thought, well, I could relate to this, because me and Nays have had arguments about hanging pictures. Obviously, I'm six foot and a bit, and so I want the nail high. Uh, Nays is smaller than me. Uh, she'd like the nail low. Uh, you know, we, where you're making your symmetry from? Is it wall to wall, or is it sofa, middle of the sofa? Whatever's going on here. You, you, have, a, you have a discussion about this, don't you? And, and what Keller says is, that soon the discussion doesn't become about where's the nail, or, you know, how high or low it is. It becomes, the discussion becomes about Who's really in charge in this world? Who's really in charge in this relationship? Are you telling me what to do? Am I being told what to do? Who's doing this? Who's making the decision? And the person standing back is giving you good advice and you're thinking, no, you're not giving me good advice. You're basically trying to dominate me with your view. (laughs) I'm glad Kelly used that example. I'm glad you laughed because it's not just me, is it? You can do that with whatever. The very first argument Naomi and I had was about apple crumble. I said apples should be sliced nicely but not mashed. And Nay says apples should be mushed. And then the crumble put on top. It wasn't really about apples. It was about who's in charge here. Who's in charge? You know, is it my family that's going to dominate or Naomi's family view that's going to dominate? And, and pride is all like that. Nobody take, we don't take advice. We're constantly evaluating everything from how it makes you feel about the world and how it makes you feel about yourself. You laugh because it's true. Uh, and our ego is, is this sense of, oh, when, when you've got a bad hip, uh, you, your, your hip is constantly telling you, I am in pain, I am in trouble, I have got a bad hip, I, I, I'm feeling this, this pain, hello? I've got a bad hip. You need to do something. Take some medication or do this or lie that side or whatever. And you've got this bad hip and it's constantly telling you that it's, that it's feeling bad. You know, body parts uh, don't come, don't grumble if they're working well. I bet most of you don't go around and say, hey, my hips are working great today. Yeah, cool. My hips are doing good. Do you think my hips are good? You don't do that, do you? You tend to. It's, but if you've got a bad hip, it's like, oh, my hips were so bad today. <laughs> yeah, and then you you get a hip replacement, and your hip still practically so used to having attention, it's still walking badly. In fact, Janet gave me some little physiotherapy advice in the atrium. But you know, your hips constantly calling attention to itself. And your ego is the same. There's something broken about your ego. There's something broken about yourself that's constantly saying, hello. Our ego is always calling to attention to itself. The snubs or not, the hurts. Did they sit with me? Where did they make me say? When I came down the stairs, did Mark say hello or didn't he say hello? Did he put me with somebody I wanted to be with or didn't he? Where did I feel about this? You're constantly processing it. Did the hurts and the snubs, was I ignored or overlooked? I've been asked to do this and I feel great. I haven't been asked to do this, I feel terrible. I've been asked to do this, I feel terrible. I haven't been asked to do this. I feel... And it's a crazy mixed up world of your ego saying, hello, pay attention to me, massage me, give me something to make me feel better. It's interesting, this idea of self-esteem is, a, is, is an interesting concept, isn't it? So, I mean, obviously proud people have got high self-esteem, haven't they? Because what they're saying is, you know, I've got this quality that makes me feel good, and this quality that makes me feel good, and this quality that makes me feel good, and this quality makes me feel good. Wow, I'm great, aren't I? And in one sense, people with high self-esteem, you know, although psychologists tell you it's good, the reality is it's probably pride. 
But the same go with, with low self-esteem. It's like, I'm not very good at this, and nobody loves me, and they haven't asked me to do this, and I've been ignored and rejected. And you sit over here with low self-esteem, and it's just the same thing. It's that self-awareness. Uh, in fact, I didn't use his book, I did, uh, but uh, I've got it on my shelf. Tim Keller's got, written a book called The, uh, the Joy of Self-Forgetfulness or something. I can't remember the title, but it's basically saying most of the time we're not self-forgetful. Most of the time we're self-obsessed. Most of the time we're constantly evaluating, estimating our wealth. A person with a low self-esteem is still playing the same game, but they're just losing at it. They're presenting their evidence before the court and the judge is going, hmm, and the jury are going, I don't think so. Yeah? And the person with high self-esteem is presenting their evidence to the court and expects the court to burst in applause. And then what happens is when the court doesn't, they down the tubes. But we're constantly evaluating our own worth. We're in this constant self-evaluation. So if that's what pride is, what are the consequences of pride? Uh, Proverbs 21.4 says, The lamp that guides uh, the wicked are haughty eyes or prideful eyes and an arrogant heart. There's this idea that actually that, that, that pride warps the way you see the world. It's almost like these glasses that you put on the filter glasses. So they, obviously they'd be green, wouldn't they? Envy, green glasses for envy. Imagine your green filters on, you'd see the world differently. Uh, you know, it's imagine you, it's almost like this sense of you see the world as, as a lamp that guides your eyes. In other words, ha- everything is seen in the light of, of your arrogant heart. Lewis Smead, who we quoted earlier, says this, In every new situation, pride asks the questions. What can I get out of this to support the need of my ego and for power and applause? It encounters new people and plots. How can this person contribute to my need for approval and significance? Pride projects our own anxieties onto other people. So when they come to us, we wonder, what is this person's pitch? What do they want from me? Life becomes a campaign to use people to support oneself and a constant battle to avoid having others use us that way. In other words, life, uh, pride just makes us warp everything. Uh, uh, In the quote I read at the beginning, it makes, and we hate it in other people. And usually when we're hating other people, it's not because we're humble. It's because we're pride, because we're comparing, and they seem to be doing better. We, we warp everything. Uh, we're always looking for the son of the subtext, the intel, the little bit of politics, the little bit of sideline that see how well we're doing. Are we going up or going down in this kind of notional ladder? So pride warps the way you see the world. And in one sense, that's a judgment of its own. Because you're constantly anxious, constantly fearful, constantly evaluating, exhaustingly self-promoting. But also pride leads to destruction. Proverbs 16, 18 and 19, probably the most uh, often quoted uh, proverb about pride. We just tend to reduce it to pride comes before a fall. But actually it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than divide wealth with the proud. What he's saying is that actually it's better to be poor and be humble. In other words, all the riches in the world are not a good swap for humility. Because if you've got pride, you will come to a fall. It's not that it's, it's, it might come or possibly will come. It will come. It's as, as night follows day, 
destruction follows pride. Sometimes in this life, definitely in eternity, pride leads to destruction. And pride causes us to be against, opposed to God's nature. If you, it's almost as if the, the universe uh, has a, a flow towards it and pride stands against that flow and wants to fight against it. It's almost like there's the oncoming traffic of the, the, the way the universe is made and pride wants to fight against it, wants to work upstream. It's going to lead to disaster. Uh, familiar verses in uh, Philippians 2, I'll just read it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Or vain conceit. In other words, guys, sort your pride. Rather, in humility, values others above yourself. Oh, no, 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 not, not value uh, others in the way that they make you feel better about yourself. But no, put others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And this is the flow of the universe. Christ Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He's not using his godness to make you feel bad. He's not using his godness to, to make, to buttress his own fragile, empty ego. He's not using his godness to, to make you a servant to him. It's because he's lacking. No, he uses his godness to to empty himself. He uses his godness to become a servant. He uses his godness to become a human. He uses his godness, his humanity, to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. But the thing about this, that that's the flow of the universe. Flow of the universe is towards humility. We in pride work against that flow. We want to make ourselves like the Most High. Uh, as Tom brought in, in, in a, a word, is we want to. Re- we need to recognize He's the King, and goodness flows downhill from Him. But we want to climb the waterfall of that love and put ourselves on the top. Men, no wonder you're exhausted. The gospel of salvation is the gospel of humility. Great Psalm 139, verse six says, "For though the load the Lord is high." He's got every reason, in one sense, to be proud, hasn't he? You know, he's got no flaws, no weaknesses, no... He's high and lifted up above us. We're dust compared to him. He's got every reason to be like that. But yet, where does he choose to dwell? He choose to dwell with the humble. But the proud he knows from afar. You want to know God, and you're proud? He's not letting you close. He's pulling down your house. The place where you dwell is going to be pulled down. You're going to live far, exiled, away. But the humble, God's coming close to those. God does that. If you look at the story of God, he's, here's the God who's born in a stable, in a feeding trough. Here's the, the God who's, who's, who, who becomes man and, 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 and is basically a poor family. He lives a, 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 a wandering life for, for, for the last three years of his life. He, he works in a carpenter's shop. This is, the, this is the God who knows all authority in heaven and earth is given to him and takes a towel and washes the disciples' feet. This is the God who's, uh, when he's crowned, he's crowned with a crown of thorns. There's a God who's stripped naked on a cross. If you were thinking of a way to change the world, 
We've talked about this on our three to one. It's an interesting. There's a great lady there. She's asking great questions, and she's saying, "Well, what's God doing then? Because the world seems all messed up." And and we've had the discussion. Well, what, what would you do? Why isn't God doing something? You know, if I was changing the world, I wouldn't be doing that. I'd be doing another way. I'd start with the bad people and get rid of them, and then then the proud people and get rid of them, and I'd make sure that the line stopped just to the side of me. All those bad people that make me feel bad and are better than me, I'll get rid of them. But I'm okay, aren't I? And all the people worse than me. Or what, do you know what I mean? How would you do it? Would you kind of exercise your mighty power and say, well, start smiting the proud, boom, 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 boom. You know, what, what, how would you do it? How would you sort out the, how would you sort out the universe? Would you take the proud people out? Yeah, destruction. Come on, let's burn some fire from heaven. Why doesn't God do something? Well, he has, but he's just not done it the way we thought. That wouldn't be the way we'd think to do it. We'd come in mighty power and glory and say, everybody bow. Why would we do that? Because we're full of pride. But here's the God who's so secure. Comes hidden, comes as a, in a stable, comes as a, on a donkey, comes with no possessions. If you read the Bible, that's the way it goes. He chooses Abraham, who's a nobody. There's a Esau, the eldest son, who's going to inherit everything, but now he chooses Isaac. He, 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 he chooses Moses, not Aaron. He chooses the youngest. He chooses the one that's forgotten. He, 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 does, he goes through the seven sons of Jesse and then says, hey, there must be one. And they say, oh yeah, there's this guy, he's nothing. He's just a shepherd. Oh, let's bring him in. Oh, I'll make him the king. Why is he doing that? Is it because he's got some kind of likes the underdog, you know, likes British, British sporting values? No, because that's what he's like. He turns, pulls the proud down from their home. But the needy seats up with the princes. He texts the, 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 the women in the, sto- in the story. If the, if the world is, is about powerful men marrying beautiful women, then what happens in, in God's story? It's the barren woman. It's the woman who can't have any kids who's, who's, who's chosen. It's the woman who nobody wants who's chosen. It's kind of the Leahs and the, and the, and the prostitutes, uh, you know, of, it's the Rahabs, it's the, it's the Naomi's from the foreign country, it's, it's, it's the outside, it's the outcast, because that's what God's like. God is, is the God of the downcast, not the powerful. He's the God of the nobodies, not the somebodies. He's the God of the forgotten, not the entitled. He's the God of the barren, not the beautiful. The weak, not the strong. And the humble, not the proud. Why? Because that's the way He is. And that's the way you come to him. God uh, says in Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What does grace mean? Grace means God's freely, un, freely given, unmerited favor. Grace means you need to earn it. You weren't good enough. You couldn't provide any evidence in the court to say you deserve it. You couldn't say, but I went to church. I served at God first. We planted a church. We, you know, we actually did a few good things. What about this? What about, you can't present any evidence in the case, but for you, against, God against you, to suggest that he could give his grace to you. There's no, no courtroom case that you can make. You have to just stand before the judge and say, guilty, worthless, empty. And your self-esteem goes, no. But you say, that's who I am compared to you. It's a, he, then he can give you grace. It's unearned, unmerited favor, free gift poured out from God. 
He gives grace to the humble. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to get down on your knees. You've got to get down on your face and say, God, without you, I've nothing. I've no hope, no chance. I'll never be anything. I'll, I'll never be, without you, I'm nothing. I'm empty and anxious and fearful. I need you. It's called repentance. The Lord tears down, I said this, the dwelling of the proud. He's got to tear down your dwelling, not because he's some kind of demolition derby kind of guy. No, he wants to pull down your dwelling because he wants you to be homeless and say, I will be at, re- I will never be at rest, said Augustine, until I find my rest in you. I'll never be at home until I humble myself and say, I find my rest in you. I wrote, it's on the slide, I think. To join the humble God is to put an end to reliance. I'm taking Smeed's, Lewis Smead's quote and twisting it into what it is to become a Christian. To humble, to join the humble God is to put an end to reliance on your own resources. To focus on Jesus and not yourself. It's to put an end with the put up, the bluff, to accept God's verdict. To admit your failings. To pray for forgiveness. God, I need you. To ask for grace. Give it to me free. To plead for mercy. I'm undeserving. And to give thanks for God when he does. That's the nature of humbling yourself. You can't enter this kingdom. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you do that. Now, most of you probably know all that, but yet you don't uh, get it. I I land here with with, uh, a couple of points. Tim Keller says, what, okay, well, well, this is all fine, isn't it? It's great in theory. I understand about that God opposes the humble. God opposes the pride and gives grace to the humble. I understand how pride messes up my life. It affects the way I see the world and how I see others. It affects all that. But yet, when I'm out here from, when I go out from Sunday, when I go out from hearing about Jesus, I'm still the same. Tim, Tim Keller, in his sermon, sermon, Haughty Eyes, puts it like this. I believe the gospel of Jesus. talking about our problem, that we get this, but why don't we get it? Somebody says, might say, I believe the gospel of Jesus, but the problem every day is I get, I get into the world and I'm sucked back into the courtroom. The moment you go out from here and you have tea and coffee, you're sucked back in the courtroom. No one's talking to me. I'm feeling bad. I, I probably am a person not really worth talking to. In fact, if they really knew what I was like, then no one would really talk to me, would they? And whatever, are you saying, man, I'm amazing. I talk to everyone. Um, people love me. People gather around me. People say I'm great. They say your shirt's looking lovely today. Whatever. We're doing that, aren't we? I get sucked back into the courtroom. I find myself doing it again and again, comparing, arguing, gathering evidence, spinning, criticizing other people and being devastated by criticism, needing to look down on people. Still trying to prove to myself and to other people that I'm a person of consequence, that I still count. Help, I'm back in the courtroom. My performance is still looking for a verdict. So you can know all this about Jesus, but yet still live in this kind of sense of the courtroom. How do you change it? Just a simple point. You've got to understand that Jesus entered the courtroom. That Jesus was dragged into the courtroom and his life was assessed and they said, we find no fault in him. Jesus was dragged into the courtroom and they evaluated him, what was his worth? And they took him 
outside and they stripped him naked and they exposed him to shame and they crucified him. And when he rose from the dead, the verdict from heaven was perfection. Perfection. Son of God in power. That's the the verdict of the court on Jesus, but if you relax around the court for for the verdict on you, it's going to come out much, much different. It's not going to come out perfection or son of God in power. It's going to come out imperfection. and You've got to get out of the courtroom. You've got to start another way of looking at it. You've got to stop looking at your performance. You've got to look at Jesus' performance. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 4, 3-4. Paul's writing... He's not writing to a court, actually. He's writing to a church. He's just writing to a church like ours. It might be about the same size. We don't know. I care very little if I'm judged by you. Sounds very proud, doesn't it? I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think. Actually, you can say that sounds really proud, but actually, it's incredibly freeing. Paul is saying, I do not care what you think. Or any other human court. I mean, the, the, the church isn't a court. But he understands the way it goes. Understand what Arthur Miller was saying in his play. He understands the way it rolls. He understands the way it goes. He says, I'm not going to be judged by you. I'm not going to let, look down on you. I'm not going to let you look down on me. In fact, I, I'm not interested in your opinion. That sounds incredibly arrogant. But he also then says, I'm not even interested in my own opinion. I'm not going to judge myself. So I'm not interested in your opinion because I'm either going to feel proud or rubbish compared to you. I'm not going to let you judge me at all. But then he doesn't say, well, I'll judge myself. That's what the world would say. And then then what we do is we sit down in silence and we think, man, I'm a good person. I'm great. I'm amazing. I'm a terrible person. And we're constantly judging ourselves, constantly evaluating ourselves. Noises in our head. I'm not going to have that either. I'm not even going to judge myself. And he says, you know, it's not because I'm perfect. My conscience is clear, but not because I'm good, not because I'm innocent, not because I've got things not to feel bad about, but I could constantly spend my time judging myself. He says, no, 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 I'm going to concentrate on one person's verdict. It's the Lord who justifies me. It's the Lord who judges me. It's God's verdict over you that counts. Stop running around and creating your own verdict. It's God's verdict, God's performance, Christ's performance that counts. Kill it again and we're done. We can live... Endless, endlessly connecting our performance with our identity and self-image. Or we can get out of the court. If I do well today, I don't become puffed up if I'm out of the court. Because I don't connect that to my self-image and self-regard. If I do badly today, I, I don't get devastated because I don't connect that to my self-image and self-regard because I'm out of the court. My performance does not lead to the verdict. It's God. It's God who justifies me. Yeah. So in other words, you're not working for your own verdict about whether you're valuable and whether you're a person of worth and whatever. No, it's God's verdict and he speaks over you. If you're in Christ, this is my beloved son and well pleased. I'm not frustrated. I'm not disappointed. I'm delighted. I'm pleased with you. This is how it works, says Keller. Christ's performance leads to my verdict. His death his life, his resurrection leads to the verdict that you're perfect, that you're loved, that you're accepted, that you're valued, that that's your identity. 
And that changes my performance. In other words, most of the time we're, we're working from performance. I've got to do this, and then God will give me the verdict I'm loved. But Christianity works this way. No, I have given you the verdict you're loved, therefore you're free to perform. So when you do good things or bad things, or whatever, you're not doing it to get people to love you. You're doing it because you're loved. You're working from that verdict. You're working from grace. I'm free to do that. So some of us, we've had this thing about social justice in the church. Some of us think, well, well, if I do, if I care for the poor, if I do this, then God will love me. But you're still doing it out of guilt. You're still working for performance. No, you've got to say, God is the God of the downcast and the, uh, 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 the downtrodden and the barren and rejected. Therefore, I'm going to be like him. There's a great line in the song. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to break bread together. We were been doing it before, but we're going to break it to, together. We want to understand that Jesus' body says, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, gave thanks. So this is my body, broken for you. The body on view, the performance on view is his body. It's his broken body. It's his shed blood. So after supper, he took the cup. After he'd given thanks, says, this is my blood poured out for you. It's almost saying that this is the flow of the universe, people. I pour into you. I pour my grace into you. I pour my verdict of love and delight into you. So when we come and take, we're doing just the opposite of pride. What we're saying is, I need you, God. I need your mercy. I'm I'm busted without you. Uh, Your verdict over me is the thing that's going to shape everything. We're not just coming and chilling, I I took it because that's what Christians do. No, you fundamentally have needed to say, I'm choosing Jesus. I'm saying I'm done with pride. I'm done with self-sufficiency. I'm done with running my own life and gathering my own evidence and I'm going to trust in him. Because if you do it without, the Bible says you're doing it in an unworthy manner. If you're not really a Christian, you're doing it in an unworthy manner. You're saying, actually, I don't recognize this. This is just something else to just boost my own performance, to tick a box for me. You've got to come, as it were, and bow before the cross and say, Jesus, it's your verdict over me. It's your life that's my life. It's your blood that's my blood. It's your righteousness that's your, uh, my righteousness. It's your performance that's my performance. It's the verdict over you that's the verdict over me. That's why we do this. There's a great line in a song, which we're not going to sing, but I'll finish with it. It says, when I survey, that means when I look, when I think and contemplate about what Jesus is on, when I survey the wondrous cross, it wasn't that wondrous, it was ugly and barren and cruel. But it's wondrous because of what it does. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the high and exalted one, the Prince of Glory died, the one who comes and dwells with the humble. When I consider that, my richest gain, I count as rubbish, refuse, as nothing. All my evidence is going in the shredder, burning it up, I'm not using it for my case anymore. My richest gain, all my achievements, I count but refuse. 
bin bagginum and pour contempt on all my pride. If you're not prepared to come and pour contempt on your pride today, stay in your seat. But if you've bowed the knee and said, Jesus, I am yours, all of you, then come. Let's drink. Let's eat. Let's hear his verdict over us. This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter. I'm well pleased. And let's go out and live in light of that verdict. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.